0: All right, thank you, musicians. Good evening, church. Wow, So, uh... <laughs> no, you come up here and you're like, oh, we're doing this again. So I'm sorry if I'm nervous, but you know, tonight is obviously to just glorify God. And I just pray it would be a blessing uh, for you tonight. Um, thank you for coming, of course. Please continue to be in prayer for our pastor. Um, he's still obviously uh, resting and his family and, of course, for the missions conference coming up next week. Uh, To get straight into into it, tonight I just want to talk about something. God has been challenging me as of late, and through my Bible study, God has revealed to me uh, a few simple applications that I would pray would be a blessing but also a challenge uh, for all of you. So if you do have your Bibles with you, could you please turn with me to um, the Book of Lamentations? Book of Lamentations, and we're there, we'll go to chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 8. Lamentations chapter 1, after the book of Jeremiah, reading from verse 8, and the Bible says this, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her, despise her, because they have seen her nakedness, yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts, she remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully, she had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh, they seek bread. They've given their pleasant things for me to uh, relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. Verse 12, is it nothing to you all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Let's pray. Lord Father, I am so nervous. I can hear it in my own voice. Lord, I just pray that you just um, help me to be clear. Uh, I just pray that you can help the congregation to just understand that these are not my words, Lord. These are your words. And I pray that if it's just one simple truth truth uh, that they might get from, from me speaking, Lord, I just pray they can retain it, they can apply it. And, oh, Lord, I just pray that you'd be pleased uh, with what takes place during our prayers, oh, Lord In Jesus, name I pray. Amen. And mate, so tonight, I want to talk about convictions. And if you're a young adult who attends a life group um, on Sunday morning for young adults, you might be thinking, Danny Holloway just did a devotion uh, on conviction two weeks ago, and you are right. And I actually asked for the notes right after he finished. For uh, those who weren't there, these are actually his notes. So from here is actually Danny's words. Um, he says, what exactly do we mean by the term conviction? Conviction means to act or the process of convincing the state of being convinced or a fixed or strong belief. Thus, by biblical conviction, we mean convictions or beliefs derived from and based on uh, scripture uh, is what you call a biblical conviction, it's from the Bible. So as God's holy word, it is the absolute foundation for the whole of our lives, faith and practice. Therefore, conviction refers to the state of being convinced and confident that something is true. It means a strong persuasion or belief. Conviction refers to the state of being convinced that something is true. And if you've been a Christian for any time now, I'm sure you're aware that having a conviction or being aware of something you should be convicted about is a different battle to upholding your convictions or protecting your convictions. In other words, knowing is one thing, but living it out is the real challenge, and such is the Christian life. Okay, so let's go back to our text. Lamentations, just for context, was written during the time of Babylonian captivity with Jeremiah, credit, credited as the author, and what it does here is that it paints a picture uh, of the sorrow toward Judah for their sin that God has allowed uh, their enemy, the nation of Babylon, to have conquest over them. Otherwise, you know, the, the fall of Jerusalem. It says here in verse 8, if you follow it with me, it says that Jerusalem have grievously sinned. They've committed themselves to unrepentant idolatry by partaking in the religion of pagan nations. And they were unrepentant toward it. And, and Which means that, you know, they didn't... They continued to do that. Um, they, there was no... Uh, no remorse or no grief. Uh, they didn't go back to God after after they sinned. And then in verse nine, there's a literary technique here. I believe it's called uh, personification in verse nine. Personification, I looked it up, is the attribution of a human nature or a personal nature to something that is non-human. Okay, so in this case, there is a language here that Jeremiah uses like as if Jerusalem was a person. Okay, so notice in verse nine, it says, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath mag- magnified himself. Okay, so Jeremiah is speaking like as if that was Jerusalem speaking. But notice here in verse 10, which is uh, the crux of the message, and the personification continues, and the, Jeremiah says this, you know, on behalf of, of Jeru- Jerusalem, he says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. He says, is it nothing to you, Judah, that our city has been destroyed? Is it nothing to you that worship to Jehovah God has now been perverted, that the precious things that are supposed to be for God has been tampered by the enemy? He says, are you not convicted, Judah, of your sins that you continue to do that has led us to this captivity? Is it nothing to you? To put it simply, Judah had lost their convictions, which angered God, to allow them to fall into the hands of the Babylonians. Now, there is an application I want to make here. So if you've been in church long enough, uh, you've listened to preaching and you read scripture, uh, you hear patterns and applications, and you've heard before that Babylon is a picture of the world. Uh, we know what the world is, right? When we say that something is worldly, uh, we're saying that it is unregenerate. We're saying it's unrepentant. The, the, world, the world is anti-gospel by nature. As we navigate through this earth, we recognize that Satan is the god of this world. Therefore, when you're in a worldly place or doing worldly behaviors or you're in a worldly state of mind, you are acting within Satan's domain, okay? You are metaphorically speaking in a place of Babylon, spiritual Babylon. And hey, we've learned from the Bible that if you stay too long in Babylon, if you stay too long in the world, you start to become like the world. It happened to Lot. It happened to Israel. It happened to Israel before they were Israel. The point is your convictions will fizzle and you will not be where God wants you to be if you spend too much time in the world, too much time in Babylon. So I challenge you tonight, Christian, if that's what you proclaim to be, where are your convictions? Is it nothing to you or you that pass by? Does it mean anything to you? Is it nothing to you that fundamental fundamental Bible-based Christianity is on a decline, in favor of more feel-good emotional worship? Is it nothing to you that Christian schools are losing their conservative roots and values and are under constant attack by worldly systems? doesn't mean anything to you. Is it nothing to you that social media has brainwashed Christian youth in how to behave or how to dress? Is it nothing to you that we pray so much for unity, but you step into a Baptist church and all you find is fighting amongst ourselves? I'm not telling you what to do, please note, what I'm trying to say is that, hey, have you considered these things? Are you convicted about these things? Tonight, I just want to go over a few simple things uh, as a reminder that we, as God's people, ought to be convicted about. So word convictions, number one, <clears throat> modesty. Modesty. Please turn to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. These are not new verses. You guys are all familiar with these. And I just pray that would be a good reminder or maybe something for you to revisit your convictions. 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading from verse 9, it says this. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but, and then in parentheses it says, which becometh women professing godliness with good works. I'll start off by saying that using these verses is easy to target women, but the why we dress modestly is actually given in verse 10 and actually applies to both men and women. Okay, so dress modestly so that by what we wear, we can profess to others that what they see is godliness. Do you think that this is only applied for church on Sundays? No, of course not. Every time you decide what to wear or what you're going to buy, you must ask yourself, actually, will this bring glory to God? Will this please God? Am I professing godliness godliness with what I wear or am I showing that I have little or no conviction about how I present myself to the world? Before I was a Christian, um, I used to love drinking craft beer. Uh, craft beer essentially refers to beer that was made by small independent breweries. Uh, part of that journey was just recognizing what flavors um, you'd like. You know, what tastes sweet, or what's malty, or I don't drink anymore. I don't drink beer anymore. At least I'm a church member now. I drink coffee. And it does it <laughs> does the same thing. You can you can have the intrinsic flavors there, and you can have fun with that. But I was going to say that there was a particular brewery that I like. And so I bought a shirt. And for those who know me, um, I enjoy buying merchandise with some kind of graphic or design element to show that you know, I support the business. And this shirt in particular, it said Fortune Tellers Brewery or something along those lines. <laughs> After I got saved, um, I stopped drinking, um, uh, stopped my vulgar language. I stopped hanging out with the friends that would encourage that behavior. And then I started reading more scripture and being open to submitting myself to the authority of the word of God. The verses like, I'll set no wicked thing before mine eyes started to stir something in me. I said to myself, if I'm making a conscious effort to abstain from the things that God has convicted me not to look at with my eyes, how much more does God expect of me from the clothes that I wear? as his vessel. I asked myself, does this shirt Fortune Tellers Brewery, does it please God? I'd already stopped drinking, I'm strongly opposed to it, and I don't visit those places because what people do there does not glorify God. But for the shirt, I just like the design. And I came to the conclusion that if I wear this shirt, I am telling everyone who sees me, I support Fortune Tellers Brewery, or I love this company's beer. Is that the message I want to communicate to others that I'm trying to win Jesus to? No, of course not. So I stopped wearing it because I developed a conviction also because it stopped fitting me anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I thought I'd include that in my notes. Sorry. <laughs> stopped, yeah, yeah. No, but the main thing was, no, I'm not, I don't want to communicate the wrong message. I don't want to misrepresent what a Christian should wear. You might be thinking, you might be thinking, actually, but it's wrong of others to assume that just because you wear a shirt of a company that you'd enjoy, you know, drinking every now and then. And to that, I would actually say, you're right. It is wrong of others to assume based on what they wear. However, if it was within my power to not encourage them to pursue that line of thinking in the first place, I wouldn't wear anything beer-related or anything of the world-related ever again. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, For the man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Christian, you might not be the one doing these worldly things, but you're sure accountable to God based on how you present yourself, how others, particularly the unbelievers, would perceive you. You might say, oh, I dress up modestly anyway. Okay, well, how's your heart? Do you dress in a modest way and then gossip to others? Do you criticize others who don't dress as modestly as you do? There's no point in trying to dress in a modest way to profess godliness if your heart is just as presuming. If you, male or female, want to dress in a way that pleases God and glorifies God, dress modestly so that when people do look at you, what they see is not a misrepresentation of a Christian, but what should reflect what's in your heart, it should be modesty. I'm not telling you what to wear. I'm just sharing a principle that can be found here in this book. Okay, so how you apply modesty is between you and God. And I just pray that you've developed a conviction here. So what are your convictions? Number one, modesty. Number two, knowledge. Knowledge. Please turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's easier for knowledge to be considered a bad thing. 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge causes people to be puffed up, which is true. However, to become puffed up is only the incorrect application of knowledge. So we'll see what God has to say about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, As newborn babes since, uh, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Verse three. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. When you became a Christian, you were a newborn babe into this family, into the spiritual family. You were a spiritual infant. Okay. Put your hand up if you were saved as an infant. Good. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. When you got saved, no one intends for you to grow by giving you the meaty doctrines of the Bible straight away. That's like going to a new convert and saying that, hey, independent Baptists are part of the Bride of Christ and so therefore you should only you know, come to a Baptist church. That's not even correct. But you feed them with easy to chew on doctrines and beliefs, okay? The Bible calls it milk. God is gracious, okay, because he's given you a life you don't deserve. God is merciful because is taken away a punishment you do deserve. Okay, you start off with the milk before you can go on with the meat. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. In verse 2, it has a colon at the end of verse 2. It says, As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby colon. And then verse 3, it says, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. There's an implication there that if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, which we all have, right? Okay, when you got saved, you tasted of the Lord's grace, amen? Well, if you can say you have tasted the grace of God, the Apostle Peter who is saying, desire then the sincere milk of the word. Prove it, grow thereby. And you ask it, well, how do you do that? Well, you by, by getting into the word of God. And I'm, I'm talking to myself right now, please. I get it. There are times where it's not that you don't want to know more about God, but you struggle to read your Bible. I get it. However, if there was someone that recently got saved but showed no desire to grow and no desire to read the Bible, that is showing fruit of unbelief. As someone in ministry like many of you here, it is frustrating to hear someone uh, who wants to do something big for God and encourage them. But because they feel like they don't know enough about God, they don't know enough about the Bible, they won't ever take that first step of faith. In most cases, honestly, that's not even a valid point because God can use anyone in any stage of life, in any part of their walk. But if you follow up with them and you say, well, are you reading your Bible? No, they'll be like, oh yeah, sometimes. And so they show this desire to be used of God, but they're not actually obeying the simple things, which is, you know, get to know God more through his word. Yes, I understand Bible knowledge isn't everything, but Lord willing, more of it, more just knowledge is what will ground you and guide you as you navigate through life as a Christian in this sin-sick world. If you're not convicted about growing in knowledge of the Word, you're setting yourself up a poor foundation to be a follower of Christ. Because not only will you not know about God through His Word, you're not going to be able to correctly apply this knowledge in your life. So what does this mean? This means that you may miss out on blessings just through for, for being obedient to God. Uh, this means that the people around you might not see a change in your lifestyle. This means that you may have poor discernment when it comes to making decisions. Why? Because you don't have any convictions on growing and behaving how God would have you to do. A new convert who has come from a life of drugs might be arguing that, hey, recreational marijuana is okay because the Bible never mentions marijuana. But actually, if you read the Bible and its principles and sort the whole counsel of God, well, you might actually come to a different conclusion. However, it is not enough to just have knowledge, okay? I mentioned earlier that having knowledge is good, but the incorrect application of knowledge will cause you to stumble and become puffed up. We call wisdom the correct application of knowledge, but it says here, "But fools despise wisdom." In Proverbs 1, well, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction." Now, I challenge you, Christian, are you being foolish in your conviction toward knowledge? Do you even want to know about the things of God? Do you have any convictions about it at all? Are you praying for more wisdom? I remember one message Pastor Shemesh was preaching a few years back and he mentioned something along these lines. If there was something I pray for every day, it would be for more wisdom. And that struck me because I realized, actually, I pray for wisdom too, but not necessarily for me, right? The standard is, you know, I pray for wisdom for my pastor. I pray for wisdom for my ministry leaders. And it's never it's never for me let alone praying every day for wisdom. I see the man of God that Pastor Shemesh is, and I think, how much of that is actually given from a heavenly source? And how much of it was through his diligence in the reading of God's word? Because I can testify, and I'm sure many of you can, that just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean it will exempt you from doing something that is unwise. If you have no desire for knowledge, or you have no conviction toward knowledge, yeah, that's between you and God, but be prepared for foolish outcomes when no wisdom is being sought after. What are your convictions? I, I had a few more up, but just for time's sake, I, I cut it short. But I had another one. It was number three. What are your convictions about authority? Okay, who do you submit yourself to? Uh, number four, respect. Um, are you convicted about who you're giving respect to? Are you giving respect to the wrong person? And I had another one about unity. Are you contributing to unity or disunity? These are things that, hey, as Christians, we're supposed to be convicted about. Okay, so I pray that was a blessing. We'll pray. Um, Lord Father, again, I just thank you that we can read from your word, open from it, Lord. Um, I didn't get to, I guess, touch on as much things as I would have liked, Lord, but... I just pray that if there was just one truth here that um, the, the congregation could get from it, Lord, help them to apply it, Lord. Help us with our convictions, Lord. Um, it's just one of those things in the Christian life where uh, it can be a bit of an emotional roller coaster, um, based on circumstances around us, Lord. But You're constant; You don't change, and Your Word doesn't change, Lord, Father. And I just pray that, hey, if we divide our convictions, Lord, I pray that You help us to uphold them, um, to protect them, Lord, to cherish them. And I, I just pray that it will just help us in our relationship with you, Lord, that we can grow and you be pleased with us, Lord. Lord, I just pray for our corporate prayer tonight, Lord. Lord, I just pray that um, you will just hear by the cries of man, Lord, and that you're just inclined here, Lord, and I just pray that you be with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.